Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so you can listen on the go. Enjoy. and an IEA fellow. Right. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to bring the conversation back to Hayek, uh, which is one of the themes of the conference, and then look at two aspects of Hayek's work. One is uh, his uh, understanding of competition or his theory of competition, and the other one is his view on antitrust. Because we've talked a lot about regulation, but the question now is, what is the boundary between the market and regulation and what type of regulation we should have or should we not have any regulation. Now Hayek was uh, an exponent or one of the leading exponents of the so-called Austrian school of economics. He was Austrian. Um, But he differed in very important respects from what would be regarded today as the consensus Austrian view about uh, uh, regulation. Um, And Last night we had a a speaker's dinner and we had to say one fun thing as part of the dinner. And uh, I just recall the comment of the socialist president of Austria when he was asked to explain the phenomenal economic growth of uh, Austria in the post-war period when he said uh, the answer is very simple. Uh, uh, I explain it by our attention to exports. We export economists. in the post-war period and, and during the uh, period, we had economists like Frederick von Hayek, Fritz Marchlip, Joseph Schumpeter, Morgenstern, von Mises, Habler, a lot of uh, expatriate Austrian economists uh, spread across the world and uh, became quite influential and obviously quite influential in helping to set up this institute. Now, what... Uh, We've had a hint at uh, what uh, Hayek's approach to competition. In one sense, uh, the articles he wrote about competition were very much uh, in their age uh, as a response uh, to the view that uh, you could, the so-called socialist calculation, that you could uh, get a computer to devise a set of prices and have a central planned economy Uh, that would achieve uh, exactly the same as the market economy could achieve. And so in the 1930s there was this big debate between uh, Abba Lerner and various other people saying, well, we could have market socialism. And Hayek then reacted to that and said, we now know his his view that, you know, the impossibility of calculating the amount of prices in a decentralised economy, only people know what they want, only firms know what the production technology is. Competition is a discovery process. This information is uh, produced, disseminated by the actions of people and becomes encoded in the prices that are charged by a market economy. So that all people need to know in order to uh, have the economy working relatively efficiently, at least more efficiently than uh, the alternative, is to know what the price is. And market forces bear down on the prices and prices uh, somehow reflect the scarcity of uh, the resources that are being used to produce things. So competition is the discovery process. And the economist model, the perfectly competitive market model, was also the subject of attack by saying, this is a model without competition. This is a model, 
And, and we know that because if you've studied microeconomics or general welfare economics, you know the Walrasian auctioneer and the Tatoanamon process, uh, where markets only clear once it's the auctioneer decides what is the market clearing price. Now, we're highly critical of, the, of that model and also the uh, uh, complement to that model, which is the market failures framework, which people use to justify a regulation, and that's been described in earlier speeches. But of course, that model is also used to establish Adam Smith's proposition that a market economy leads to the efficient allocation of resources, a hidden hand model or an invisible hand model. Uh, but Hayek was more concerned with the process of uh, um, how the market worked. Now, Hayek wasn't the first person to, to criticize the perfectly competitive model. Before him was Joan Robinson and Edward Chamberlain, uh, who developed the model of monopolistic competition or imperfect competition. J.M. Clark tried to fashion the perfectly competitive model into a model of workable competition. And we've had this sort of concept in EU antitrust law and other antitrust laws of effective competition or whatever terminology you want to use. There's some counterfactual that people have in the back of their mind that is the alternative to what they're seeing in front of them and saying, well, this is the benchmark against which we are going to evaluate uh, what's happening. Uh, Ronald Coase obviously had a, a statement to make about the price system and uh, the alternative to the price system. Remember Hayek saying that the price system is an efficient way of uh, disseminating information and conveying it to people, that it can't be processed. Uh, Coase said, well, actually the price system is a costly way of uh, operating in certain circumstances and firms uh, endogenously come about because they're economizing on the transaction cost of using the pricing system. So here you have an extension of the model. You can say it's a criticism of Hayek, but not necessarily of the endogeneity of firms and non-market institutions to economize on the cost of trading. Uh, and that's part of the, what the Hayek would call the spontaneous order uh, that it develops in a market economy. And of course, there were the French economists Bertrand and Cournot who developed the models of oligo oligopolistic competition. Now, I think the, the interesting aspect of all this is all those people I've mentioned have got more traction within mainstream economics than Hayek did. And I, I'm coming to Schumpeter in a minute, which I know is uh, the uh, god of the, uh, <laughs> our co-sponsor here. Uh, so the, I think the, one of the questions that arise from Hayek's model of competition as a discovery process uh, and arising spontaneously is that part of the central claim, it's not the whole picture that he's presenting, but part of it is that the market is more efficient in uh, analyzing and disseminating data, information. So the market is an algorithm for collecting data processing and signaling to people what they should do or giving price signals to people. So it follows, like Coase analyzed, that if the cost and technology changes of data processing and data information processing, then of course the configuration of the market and presumably regulation will also alter to some degree. Uh, and that was, in one sense, the uh, thesis of the market socialists. They were saying, well, we've got computers and they can do the job of the market. And uh, I quote here uh, Oscar Langer, uh, that debate took part in the 1930s. 
in the 19, late 1960s, he's, you know, this is a recurring debate because I, I can point to some articles uh, now that's saying, you know, central planning and market socialism is on the agenda again because we have these computers that can really rev up things. Uh, but Oscar Langer said in 1967, let us put the simultaneous equations on an electronic computer and we shall obtain the solution in less than a second. The market process appears old-fashioned. The computers made the age of rational calculation possible. Now, there has been, and as we have seen from the, early, uh, the previous presentation and any reading around it, dramatic increases in the processing power of computers, the availability of uh, telecommunication networks, the internet, smartphone we carry around. Things, when I was a kid, uh, were, you know, Dick Tracy and science fiction. They weren't a, a possibility. Now people have phones in there, you know, calling Dick Tracy, they, they, can, they can do it. Uh, and they can process a lot of data. And this is uh, coming on stream in, in quite dramatic ways. I was just reading an article on quantum computing. Um, this is at the experimental stage now, but uh, venture capital funds are investing in quantum computing. And I understand that uh, the units that are available do 100 qubits at the moment, but they're trying to develop ones doing a, a million qubits. Don't ask me what a qubit is. But if you have a computer of 300 qubits, it can simultaneously process uh, uh, data points equivalent to all the atoms in the known universe. So you, the, the computing power of these computers will be dr dramatic. So the, there's an issue here of how technology is changing the relationship between the market and the non-market and uh, the industrial organization of the economy. So that, that's a major point. Now, another issue with Hayek um, is that it's quite a price-centric model, to use the common vernacular. He, he was focused on prices. And of course, his fellow Austrian, Schumpeter, said, well, this is just irrelevant. You know, you don't understand capitalism. Capitalism is about innovation and the destruction of markets. And oddly enough, while the intellectual heritage of Hayek was probably Adam Smith in terms of spontaneous order and the invisible, the intellectual heritage of Schumpeter was Karl Marx, because Karl Marx was about the destruction of capitalism and its rejuvenation. So, and I've got to say the Schumpeter at points, I mean, I, I reread re his, uh, and one thing this conference has caused me to do is reread some of this stuff that I read decades ago. Schumpeter uh, had a, a much better turn of phrase, like the creative gales of, uh, the gales of creative destruction, uh, than Hayek. I think Hayek was a bit stodgy in the way he described things and probably didn't get the headlines that Schumpeter was able to get. And, uh, and Schumpeter seems to be a, a much more colorful character than Hayek. I've met Hayek, but I haven't met Schumpeter, but he said it, Schumpeter said he, he had three ambitions in life, is to be a great economist, a great lover, and a great horseman. And he said there were too many good horsemen in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> so uh, Schumpeter was also much more sympathetic to monopoly and oligopoly stru structures. Um, but when we come, and I'm not going to labor these points because they've been made before, is, is it different this time? When Hayek, remember Hayek is writing in, in the immediate post-war period, 
you know, even his later work is 60 years old. That was a mechanical analog age. I mean, the examples he gives in his book is tin, you know, and, and uh, he's concerned about the monopoly of a scarce resource, what it, it undefined. So it, it's a different world he was operating. It is also a different world geopolitically. He was concerned about the encroachment of communism uh, and socialism. He was worried about the uh, trade unions and inflation, which we may come back to now. The competition of digital, the economics of digital markets is quite different. We've got network effects, tipping, super firms, uh, winner takes all competition, uh, two sided markets, data mediating transaction rather than prices, free goods being and services being provided. You know, I've got a little cartoons. He is saying, you know, uh, what, what's, it, what's it say? I've got slides which I'm not uh, giving you, but. <laughs> um, uh, whatever. Um, we've got computers, big data, concerns about algorithmic pricing where people are not involved at all, just machines com uh, not even communicating with each other, but observing what they're doing. We've got this whole problem of vertical integration, self-prefacing and exclusionary behavior, which I'll come to in a minute. So what was Hayek's view about monopoly? Um, now, the standard Austrian view of monopoly and cartelization is that it doesn't matter. The market will resolve it. Monopolies who charge high prices, who attract competition, entry, that will be resolved. Cartels are unstable. You know, we know the, the theory, you know, the, the game theory, the prisoner's dilemma, and all that. So we're, we're not, there's no worry, you know. And in fact, there's no need for a competition law. All we need to do is remove barriers to entry and government regulation. Now, Hayek was not of that school. And there's an interesting question of why he, d he didn't buy into that, because his mentor, von Mises, strongly puts that case and dismisses any idea that there will be a monopoly problem in a market capitalist economy. What Hayek uh, found, and I, I don't know whether it was because of the, you know, pre-Second World War, uh, most of European industry was cartelized. And it is also the case that uh, the German cartels have been said to be uh, partially responsible for the rise of Hitler and National Socialism in Germany. So there may have been those political considerations that affected Hayek's view of uh, whether cartels and monopoly were a major consideration at, at that time. But if I, if I just read out what Hayek uh, said, uh, uh, yes, this is the one. Quite generally, it can probably be said that what is harmful is not the existence of monopolies, that are due to greater efficiency or to the control of particularly limited resources, but the ability of some monopolies to protect and preserve their monopolistic position after the original course of their superiority has disappeared. The main re reason for this is that such monopolies will be able to use their power not only over the prices which they charge uniformly to all, but over the prices which it can charge to particular customers. This power over the prices they will charge particular customers or the power to discriminate can in many ways be used to influence market behavior of others 
and particularly to deter otherwise uh, influential potential competitors. So what he's talking about is price discrimination and exclusionary behaviour. Uh, and that obviously has parallels in the digital world and also in uh, the non-digital world that uh, competition authorities have uh, operate. So it, the Austrians now make a distinction between uh, monopoly due to government privileges and barriers to entry uh, and what uh, Hayek uh, has referred to is a non-privileged monopoly, that is one that does not has state uh, protection or state benefits, can engage in exclusionary behaviour and that needs to be controlled. And he seems to suggest, at one hand, that price discrimination is bad, but then says it's you know, compatible with a market economy, price discrimination happens, but we need to control price discrimination when it's done by a non-privileged monopoly. Uh, so, Ambiguity, lack of clarity as to how we uh, sort this out. So, so that's that's very well. You know, here's a theory of monopoly, a, a theory of uh, competition. In his later years, in the Constitution of Liberty, which was published in 1960, he set out his view of antitrust in a few pages. This was later developed in uh, 1979 in Law, Legislation and Liberty. And, and in fact, the, the chapter there that describes his view of antitrust or a liberal antitrust is, uh, was published in German in 1969. So it was about the same time as the Constitution of Liberty. So his idea, in the Constitution of Liberty, there's a few pages and then he develops those things in, in the German language and then he reproduces that in chapter 15, I think, of the third volume. Now, it's written in the 1960s, that's 60 years ago. It's a long time ago. Uh, this country didn't have antitrust, you know. I wasn't going to say that I, in Australia, I was learning antitrust 60 years ago, but certainly in the 1970s, we, we didn't have an antitrust law in Australia. Uh, so this is really the only real example he had was the Sherman Act in the United States, and he refers to that. But moving away from this historical analysis, what uh, Hayek uh, proposes is that antitrust uh, um, should deal with ex discriminatory exclusionary behaviour of non-privileged uh, monopolies. Obviously, he was against government preferment. The contracts in the restraint of trade should be void and unenforceable, which is the case now. Uh, he was against public enforcement, and I think uh, some of the presentations that we've had here about uh, uh, Christian Orban's uh, presentation about the machinations within the competition authorities and ex-competition authority officials indicates what Hayek was worried about. You know, this monopoly is good, this one's bad. You know, uh, he was he he was worried about the discretion, and he seems to be worried generally about discriminatory behaviour by the state and also by private uh, economic power. And so he re rejected public enforcement of antitrust and wanted uh, private enforcement. And for the lawyers amongst you, this is a charter for you. He, he said, those firms that are affected by uh, discriminatory behavior can sue, and they can sue through the courts. Um, 
they get triple damages, was his proposal. Obviously, he was living in the States, in Chicago, so he was watching what was happening in the Sherman Act and the American system, and lawyers should get contingency fees. Um, so private enforcement of antitrust law, uh, abolition of uh, public enforcement agencies. Um, so let me, uh, uh, I know we're starting to hit the uh, time barrier, but it's not my fault. <laughs> Let's assess Hayek's view on antitrust. First of all, it's what, what's the discrimination that's going to be actionable in the court of law? I don't know. You know, he, he's, he puts it out there saying exclusionary discrimination, but how are private litigants going to decide what, what that is? You know, he was in favor of, per, at one stage, in favor of per se rules. That is, all discrimination should be banned and become. So if you're a firm competing with someone and they give people in North London a price discount, that's the type of discrimination he had in mind. Um, so targeted predatory pricing margin squeezes, all those type of things that we know of. How did he come to his view about antitrust? You know, he was, he, he was obviously greatly influenced by being at the LSE for a while, and he talks about this spontaneous legal order, which is the common law. Now, if you look at the common law of England in, in, his, in respect of monopolies and cartels, it didn't regulate them. The common law taught of restraint of trade was only concerned about the reasonableness or oppression of the agreement between the parties to the agreement. So if, it was, if a cartel agreement was oppressive to one party and they brought an action against it, then that, that would be an actionable tort. But it wasn't concerned about the actions, the effect of the cartel against uh, the purchasers of the product or uh, general impact on the market as such. So, Prior certainly to the First World War, the tort of restraint of trade was uh, completely useless in terms of being a, a model of antitrust. So here we have a situation where Hayek is in favor of uh, regulatory intervention. His notion of a good legal order, a liberal legal order, is one that spontaneously arises from the market, the common law, in the case done by judges. Uh, yet he proposes something that Sherman Act type thing, American antitrust law, which people say is much more common law than European law, but it gives no basis on which what, uh, he adopts uh, that system. So it's not clear what the litmus test is for good liberal antitrust law, even within Hayek. Now Hayek then refers to the rule of law, which is something he's again picked up from England, uh, but the rule of law is actually, uh, go back one step, he says what determines liberal from illiberal law and conscious contrivances of the state is the rule of law. Again, that's a, a, a fixation with discrimination because the rule of law says that no matter how powerful you are, you are subject to the same laws as the lowly person in the, in the fields. But the, the rule of law is an empty concept in terms of determining what the law is. It just says that everyone is subject to the law and it should be applied equally amongst them. It doesn't determine w what the law is. So th that uh, doesn't have uh, much uh, uh, credence. 
So there are problems with Hayek's uh, notion of what is a liberal antitrust. And I, I, it's almost non-operational in the sense that we don't know what we, the cause of action would be amongst the parties. It's not coherent in the sense that price discrimination can be good and bad, even if uh, exercised by a monopolist. You know, we know from standard theory that second and third degree price discrimination has efficiency uh, uh, attributes. What, what would Hayek's, uh, l let me close, what would Hayek's view be of the digital economy? Well, you know, when he was talking in 1960 about these particular matters, there was no digital economy, so it's a bit uh, presumptuous to say what his views would be about it. But um, obviously, from re reading it, he would be against this narrow market definition business because in the Hayekian view, big is not bad, which is the sort of mantra of what is happening in a lot of antitrust developments. And companies in contiguous areas compete with each other. He made that quite clear, you know, that our narrow focus on the company in a particular market is misguided. But on the other hand, uh, someone writing about Hayek and antitrust, and this is a fairly unresearched area, says, uh, the two harms identified by Hayek um, form the, the linchpin of the de Department of Justice case against Microsoft in the 60s, in, in the, sorry, in the 90s. So that Hayek would probably come out in favor of what the, uh, the DOJ was doing to Microsoft, you know, um, and would probably be against the self-prefacing of Amazon or the alleged self-prefacing of, of Amazon because it was discriminatory. Um, so, I, I'm afraid for the, uh, for the IEA <laughs> that Hayek uh, is very ambivalent about antitrust and, its, and the market economy. He do, he, he, in conclusion, he puts forward a, a set of proposals which is active antitrust, which is not in line with his fellow Austrians who don't see a problem at all. Uh, and then he sets out an antitrust regime that is very hard to uh, get to the bottom of. Um, and it's not clear what the intellectual basis of this antitrust regime is. So I, I think I'll, I'll end there on that not so positive note. <laughs>